Yeah, so human beings uh, always love the beginning of a good relationship. You got hope, excitement, daydream. You want to spend time with the other person. And so it is with this 21st century psychedelic renaissance, we have a revived relationship between psychedelics and human beings. We have states and cities decriminalizing psychedelics and beginning psychedelic assisted therapies. Uh, overseas, we're seeing the similar efforts. We have enthusiastic media, government grants for psychedelic research. And to avoid a honeymoon period letdown in this new relationship and not screw up a good thing, we need greater balanced understanding and knowledge of psychedelics. Um, for me, I like to use my platform as an educator at a large public institution like FIU to provide exhaustive, tempered, critical, in-depth psychedelics education, which covers history, chemistry, neurobiology, ethics, legality, and of course, risks. Many relationships do last the test of time. And though the psychedelics human relationship has broken up before in the 60s, uh, perhaps with proper psychedelic education now, we can sustain this current renaissance to really be beneficial for human beings and not cause as much damage as it might. So thanks for tuning in. This is the Roscoe's Wetsuit Neuro Podcast. The neurohacking show where we teach you how to optimize your cognition. Keep up to date at roscoeswetsuitneuro.com. Now here's your host, Toby Passman. All right, welcome everyone to a new episode of the Roscoe's Wetsuit Neuro Podcast. I am your host, Toby Passman. On the show with us today, we have a very special guest, Dr. Joseph Lichter. Dr. Lichter is a teaching professor in the chemistry and biochemistry department and the director of the Office of Pre-Health Advising. He teaches chemistry courses, including the course, The Psychedelic Renaissance, which investigates the history, chemistry, neurobiology, risk, and potential of psychedelics. Uh, so Dr. Lichter, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Toby. Please call me Joey. Joey, right on. So tell me a little about kind of your, your background and what originally got you interested in the psychedelic space. Sure. Um, so um, I was a chemistry student in undergrad, um, and it's funny how I became a chemistry student because um, when I started at Florida State back in 98, I was a political science major, and I had taken some courses on um, uh, Vietnam War, uh, comparative governments, and I just found myself looking at the professors that were teaching the course, and they didn't seem happy, and so... <laughs> I remember thinking, this doesn't seem like the right thing for me. So then I started considering other fields and I went into environmental studies and there was maybe this hippie in me that thought I would save the world. And um, one of the first classes I had to take was chemistry. And when I took that course, it was easy. It was, I had no problems. And so pretty quickly after taking the second semester of chemistry, I was still on board for environmental studies, but I said, you know what, I think chemistry works for me. And so I went into chemistry and, and really out of a, uh, an ability to understand what my professors were sharing and, and also noticing that they were happy to both be doing research and teach. And so that, that led me on a path where, where eventually you know, I graduated research in chemistry 
um, I had a short bit of a, a research stint in Arizona State in, um, in 2001, in the summer there on um, artificial photosynthesis. Then uh, graduated and went to Emory where um, I was really working on studying how um, certain HIV drugs would bind to their target um, in the body. So um, I always tell people, if you ever watch the Dallas Buyers Club, which is a great film, a lot of the drugs that they were talking about um, in that film were drugs we were working on, in particular AZT, uh, D4T. And these were all um, analogs of DNA that the, the job of the body was to get this analog of DNA to the virus. And the analog had a stop sign in it that said, stop making more virus. Um, but the whole process would require that the analog find certain enzymes that would activate it, and it would tend to be a bottleneck process. So I became very fascinated with the concepts of you know, enzymes and substrates. Enzymes, which are the thing in the body that do the chemistry, and the substrate being the, the little molecule or, or chemical that's, that's trying to work with the enzyme to make things happen. And... I spent a lot of time in graduate school thinking about enzymes and substrates. And what brought me to psychedelics was as I was planning to graduate and thinking about moving on, you know, graduate students tend to think about postdoctoral training, which is a great way to get more research experience so that you can then take that with you to um, a, another academic institution to be a research professor. And I invited a guy who was doing fascinating work on serotonin receptors, uh, in particular 5-HT2A, um, though he worked on all of them, 5-HT2B, 2C, even 5-HT1, and, and the whole gamut of these um, transmembrane G-coupled proteins uh, that were serotonin binding. And what was neat about his work was that, unlike my work on um, it would bind to the target and stop HIV from uh, replicating. What he was doing was looking at how these serotonin-like molecules like LSD and a lot of analogs of serotonin, the tryptamines, the phenethylamines, and once they would bind to the target, they caused these, these weird mystical experiences, these weird altered states. And, you know, I was, I was aware of, of what psychedelics were, but on a chemical level, on a, on a mechanistic level, it seemed like it was still so far, you know, from being understood what was happening chemically that was creating this experience. And, and this guy was, was, was doing it. His name is David Nichols. Um, he's very, very popular in the field of psychedelics, a pioneer, um, an incredibly nice guy. And he came to Emory when I was working there. I invited him. We had a great, great visit. And I never asked him to work for him. And part of the reason why is I was really afraid that even though I was genuinely interested in that work and thought it, it was at that time, it was also 2009, which in terms of the psychedelic renaissance, it was right around the time of Roland Griffith's um, psychopharm paper on, on um, you know, mystical experiences, um, you know, created from psilocybin, which was one of the real you know, seminal papers of this renaissance of it. So it was, it was a good time to start getting into it, but I had fear. I had fear that what if I can't find uh, an institution that wants to hire me because I'm a psychedelics researcher, I'm not a, you know, a medical chemist or a medicinal chemist or, 
you know, something of that nature. So I never followed up with Dr. Nichols on becoming a postdoc. I came here to FIU where I'm teaching now and I taught chemistry for many years. I taught uh, analytical chemistry, organic chemistry, and still fascinated by chemistry by all, you know, all factors. Um, but in the last two years, the Honors College, where I've been teaching um, some other courses, we were looking for new courses and new ideas. And it was at that point that I realized, you know, one of the missing pieces in this psychedelic renaissance is, is proper education. Um, and so I put together a course idea. And um, the first time we, we did it, I had... Um, probably the best ratings I ever had for any course I taught, but I also had such great support. I reached out to Dr. Nichols. I reached out to um, members of the Johns Hopkins Center for Psychedelic Research, and everyone was so uh, willing to speak to students. Um, and we really, we, you know, we had a great experience as a class because I'm learning with them. There's things that you know, we really tackled that um, required all of us, myself included, to, you know, dig into the journals, to really look at the materials and the methods and the analysis and, and make as good of a judgment as to what's happening, truly happening, and not just taking away headlines from the news, you know, LSD research booming or psilocybin becoming decriminalized. We really, you know, we dig into it. And, and so, so that's what I do in a short short way to say it. And something you alluded to with, with uh, psychedelics working on serotonin receptors, specifically the 5-HT2A receptor that gets a lot of attention. Like if you, if most people are to read some article explaining how psychedelics work in the brain, they're probably going to come across that explanation of, of psychedelics modifying that receptor. So I just wanted you, if you could elaborate a little bit on you know, your understanding of, of neurobiologically what is going on when someone ingests, you know, psilocybin, LSD, one of these, you know, so-called traditional psychedelics. Yeah, um, well, to attempt to not um, uh, frighten or scare away the layperson with the explanation, um, what these compounds do is they bind um, to a part of this protein that exists throughout the cortex. I mean, um, the you know, serotonin is a neurotransmitter that has a lot of functions, whether it's, it's you know, contracting muscle in the, in the smooth lining of your, you know, of, of, of your stomach, or even, you know, mood, you know, obviously mood stuff, but a variety of different things. So it's the the presence of these um, of these receptors is throughout the cortex, all over the brain. Um, and when when a molecule binds to it, it then creates a, a, a signal to another protein that you know it creates what's called a, a, a signal transduction pathway, where a bunch of things are now picked up and they start to um, do some chemistry. Um, I think where we are in terms of the neurobiology, for many years, we didn't even know how the structure of that 5-HT2A receptor looked, right? And just for the layperson, you know, 5-HT means 5-hydroxytryptophan. 
which is just another way to say serotonin. So 5-HT2A receptor is really just saying it's a receptor to bind serotonin. Um, we didn't know the structure until maybe two years ago. Um, I can't remember exactly um, what year it was, but Brian Roth's group in UNC was able to actually crystallize. Um, X-ray crystall crystallography is a technique in molecular biology that uh, attempts to take a, an enzyme and uh, solidify it into a crystal that can then be shot with X-ray and the diffraction, the way the, the X-ray bind, uh, bends off of the molecule or, or bounces off the molecule, as you could say, you can create a picture of what it would look like. And what's beneficial on that is prior to the, having the structure, no one knew where in the molecule, you know, where in the enzyme does the, the LSD or the DMT or, or the psilocybin bind. But now that we have that picture, we actually, you know, Ross group was able to crystallize it with the molecule bound. So now we know exactly where this thing is likely binding. What it's doing next, you know, this is really the area that is still being understood is what, what are all of the signals that lead to this altered state? And I, I don't think we know yet. I don't think we have um, a, a clear picture on that. We do know um, that these uh, 5-HT2A receptors, they're called you know, G-coupled proteins because they bring um, these G proteins to it that then uh, cascade a, a variety of things um, to, not, to not lose you or lose anybody else. I would say that what we do know is this is where this thing binds. There were some great studies in the 70s that kind of indicated that the 5-HT2A was really uh, connected to hallucinogenic properties in animals. Um, they use these head twitch um, assays with rats, which, you know, ultimately, as the name implies, you would look to see if the, the rat's head moves, you know, sort of twitchy, which indicated that it, it was having some sort of um, physiological response. And they would try to block all the specific 5-HT receptors with known um, you know, competitive binding agents, things that could block maybe the 5-HT um, 1A or the 5-HT 2B or 2C. So uh, short story is these things bind there. What happens next is still a little bit of a mystery. So something that we talked about a little before we started recording, and I just wanted to continue the conversation on was, you know, it seems like with this sort of psychedelic renaissance that we're experiencing right now where there's all these proponents of psychedelics saying, you know, it's, it's going to, you know, end mental health disorders and, you know, just really just people who are strongly advocating for these substances. I know you, you take a, a bit more of a, a moderate approach to that. And I just wanted to kind of hear your perspective on, on the kind of psychedelic boom that we're experiencing right now. And, and just what, what you think of, you know, how these substances are going to end up continuing to affect, I guess, society and psychiatric and, and mental health treatment at large. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I, I'll try to make it really relatable. You know, it, I describe it like, you know, starting a new relationship. Uh, when, we, when we get into a new relationship, we're really excited 
and we think about the other person a lot and we really hone in on the positives of that person. We're not sitting there evaluating perhaps the red flags. And so psychedelic renaissance is a revival. Um, you know, the LSD synthesis, you know, the first time was in the 30s. And then, you know, in 1943, you know, Albert Hoffman, you know, brought it back, kind of had some interest in, in its properties. And in the first, you know, 10 years, there was a great amount of research that was done. And then as we got to the 60s, there was still so much enthusiasm that it went off the rails because of public rampant use that had casualties, you know. Um, where we are now, we are, we're back in this like new relationship, revived relationship, and we're seeing a lot of the same sort of enthusiasm, but it can't be it can't be overlooked that there are a great amount of risks. And in particular, you know, I think psychedelics are incredibly attractive to young people, uh, young people who are trying to find their identity and they're, they're starting to gain independence and maturity. They often want to explore the world of adulthood. And so things like sex and things like drugs and things like um, things that, that they didn't maybe think were even within reach become interesting to them. And uh, one of the big challenges with that is that psychedelics are powerful and, and they're potentially for somebody who has an underlying psychiatric disorder that has not necessarily come to fray yet, psychedelics could also be, you know, terrible for somebody. Um, under the wrong set and setting, they could really be disastrous. So, so what I, my approach with studying them is to keep the stories of people who have had some casualty to it, uh, you know, in the mix as part of the discussion, because for this relationship to succeed, and I just, you know, going back to my metaphor, when somebody's in a relationship, you're not going to give up just when you have your first battle, but you need to be aware of what the battle is and how to approach it. And when, when you are faced with it, instead of either, you know, giving up completely, you already had anticipated how you could manage around it. And so um, there's definitely a great body of evidence coming out of the research now that there's a, a potential especially for people who are experiencing uh, hardships, mental hardships. Um, you know, you, you, you hear about it, PTSD, depression, anxiety. I mean, so many people suffer from some level of that. So there is a, a, a hope that if this is successfully, um, you know, um, handled, that, that people will be helped. But we also have to be aware there could be casualties to it as well. And how do we avoid that? How do we, how do we take that into account? That's really important. And, and you know, my course is with these young people. And so we talk about a lot of things. Number one, you know, psychedelics are illegal. So there is a huge risk legally right now for somebody who thinks that, well, because I'm hearing about microdosing, maybe I should go try to find something a huge risk to be out there doing that. 
Um, there's also a huge problem with uh, false uh, labeling of compounds. Uh, I think young people are being sold things on the street called Molly, and they have no idea what it is. And instead of, you know, taking a sample to a testing site, they often just tested themselves on themselves. So we discuss the high risk of that. And you don't necessarily hear about that when you turn on the news and they're talking about, you know, the recent research, you know, coming out of MAPS or coming out of Hopkins. So um, I, I come at this course not, not trying to belittle by any means excellent research being done, but also not trying to brush under the rug the, the stories that we do hear of casualties, um, the, the problems that do arise from psychedelics. So tempered approach to this is, is the only way this relationship will succeed. It's, it's interesting. I mean, something that you just brought up, like referring to, to Molly or, or MDMA, the active ingredient that hopefully should be in the Molly that people are getting, but maybe, maybe not. Um, in terms of like, I think that's just like a great example of, of a substance that, you know, you're hearing all of these positive uh, things about, you know, coming from maps, uh, they're using it for, for PTSD with, with great success, with like psychedelic assisted therapy. And, but yet when you, you know, when I comb through just like kind of neurobiological papers, uh, assessing MDMA, you know, you, you're still reading about the majority of, of the papers are still talking about the harms, the damage that it's, that it's doing to neurons. And I guess I just wanted to hear your take on like, you know, not even just like the, the risks in terms of, you know, legally or, or societal uh, society risks, but just in terms of, you know, are these, some of these substances, it seems as if some people are saying they're super good for the brain, they can be helpful. Other, other people are saying the opposite. So what, what's your take on that? Um. MDMA is interesting because there was um, a retraction on a paper um, that was published in Science um, years back that um, had uh, suggested that they had saw you know neuron death in a rat model um, from the use of um, of MDMA. And um, a lot of researchers um, who were at the time looking at this, this was, um, the paper was um, by an author's name was Ricarte. Um, they had saw some damage to these dopamine exon exons. And what, what, what it turned out to be is that they had made a mistake with the bottle that was labeled that they were using, and it was actually methamphetamine, it wasn't MDMA. And uh, this retraction, this, this goes back, to, I think now to 2003, um, the damage that that original paper did was to create media reports of MDMA can cause brain damage. And even after being retracted, because the 
researchers admitted to making a mistake with labeling their bottle, I think the damage was still done in that some people never really saw the retraction and thought about it. Um, so the, the evidence on neuron damage from MDMA, you know, it has been argued. Um, now, I would say that um, the risks with any of these compounds is that um, the, you know, the more you do something, the higher risk, the higher statistics of damage. Uh, so I'm a, I'm a runner too, right? And I, I run all kinds of distances. And that goes from, you know, a, a simple mile to running a hundred miles. And we know <laughs> that if you will run a hundred miles, there's a higher, you know, a higher uh, likelihood of injury than running one mile. Does it mean that running is bad for you? No, it means you need to be aware of how you train and how you decide to run. You should not run 100 miles if you haven't trained to run 100 miles. Can you run one mile without training? Most people can, but even some people need to be careful. And I think the same can be said with psychedelics. It's, it's not that taking one dose of psilocybin or MDMA is going to cause you brain damage, but you need to be aware that if you have any underlying conditions if you're not if you're not doing it um, with with good intention or with the the proper preparation there's a risk there's a risk um i'll tell you this i mean this is this was a story that i, I share a lot um we we watched a film a fantastic film called trip of compassion and Trip of Compassion is a film that was made in Israel. And it was a research group that was doing the phase three MDMA trials with patients with PTSD. And um, you could see visually that under the assistance of the MDMA, the, the patients were, you know, they were, their emotions had changed. They were a lot more vulnerable, a lot more um, relaxed, maybe. Um, they were able to address their, their, their pain in a way that it looked like it was really cathartic for them. And in watching that, one of my students said out loud, um, I don't understand. That's not what I experienced when I tried MDMA. I was anxious and I felt, you know, um, I felt um, irritable and, you know, immediately, I, I mean, again, and I'll just say this, I tell my students that I am not endorsing psychedelic use in my classroom ever, but when they want to speak openly, I'm okay with them discussing things if it's, you know, helpful to the discussion and what we came away with from that young lady's discussion was somebody else asked her, how do you know what you took was truly MDMA? Did you, right. did you use a testing kit to see that what you had was real? And she said, no. And so this immediately led to the discussion of this is the problem. The, the, the black market for psychedelics is, uh, a, a free-for-all 
where, I mean, the damage that that can do is so great that we have to think about how do we protect young people from that? And, you know, <laughs> there's another, another argument that was had in that class was, well, uh, why does the government keep psychedelics away from people? Well, mm. in the 60s, you know, it, there was definitely a fear that those under the influence of psychedelics would have no desire to fight in Vietnam, would have no desire to go to work. There was a, a whole movement to argue that psychedelics were ruining the fabric of America. Richard Nixon made it public enemy number one. But I don't think that argument holds true today. And, and, and the students, you know, argued, well, maybe the government is trying to hold us back, to which point, you know, my, my response was, is it also possible that the government is trying to protect young people from potential harm? Um, and, 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 you know, if young people are the ones who seem to be gravitating towards this, who don't realize yet that they have an underlying psychiatric disorder, could this be something that is important to consider in the discussion, how to properly protect people while also making it available to those who could benefit from it. So um, I know I veered a little bit from the original question about, you know, uh, neuronal death, but I think um, there's, you know, the, the problem we face today is just so much black market psychedelics that, that you can't have this discussion and not protect people from knowing, you know, don't go out on the street and buy something. It's, it's likely not even, you know, what you think it is. Right. Right. No, I mean, and that's, that brings up the, obviously a, a huge problem with psychedelics or, or how they're regulated. And I mean, you know, just looking at substances that, you know, uh, people will agree that they have some, you know, inherent harm, you know, such as obviously cigarettes or alcohol, you know, you see those or even now cannabis in states where it's become recreationally legal, where it's like, you know, you have to be of a certain age in order to buy that from a store. But, you know, it is regulated. Uh, I mean, with cannabis, obviously, to a different degree, maybe. But, you know, you, you do know kind of what you're getting. You can see the packaging, you can see the test results. And then there's also, obviously, you know, the way pharmaceuticals are being regulated and obviously having to have a doctor's prescription and, and then going to a pharmacy and filling that prescription. So it seems like there could be some different ways that, that psychedelics could be dispensed or, you know, sold. And I guess I'm, I'm curious to hear your take on, you know, do you have a preference for one of those models? Do you think there needs to be a completely new model? Like how for people uh, who, you know, should have access to these substances uh, who, you know, maybe it's assessed that the, the benefit, the potential benefit is greater than the potential risk. Like how, what would be the best way in your eyes to, to actually be able to get safe, you know, tested versions of, of these different substances in people's hands? Great question. Um, I'll start by giving you the response to that question that Rick Doblin, uh, you know, the, the founder and, and, and chief operating officer of, uh, um, or chief executive officer of uh, 
Maps, um, he spoke about this recently and said what he sees in the future would be that adults, uh, you know, 18, 21, whatever the, the age that is decided, I think 21 was the age he gave, would have to um, get a card that would allow them to purchase um, psychedelics, cannabis. Um, it would not necessarily be a medical card, but it would be a card that you would apply for at something of 21 years of age. And if for some reason you end up arrested or um, there is something that happens to you um, that you get Baker acted or you end up with a psych, uh, uh, you know, evaluation of sorts that indicates you have uh, a risk, but that card could be, um, you know, taken away or, um, or suspended, right? Um, and what, you know, what he was suggesting is, um, it makes sense, you know, not everybody should just be able to go, you have to want to do it. Um, the, I think one of the parts that was challenging to that was somebody asked Rick Dublin at that same point, what about alcohol, would it be the same? And he said, yeah, I would envision that alcohol would be another one that, you know, you can it'd be a part of that sort of membership uh, or that uh, having your, your license to consume. Um, and if you got, you know, a DUI or any arrest, it would be suspended or revoked. And I think hearing him say he would like to include alcohol in that process, it, it seems like it would be an uphill battle fighting against, you know, big alcohol distributors, Anheuser-Busch, all the big names. They're not, they're never going to love that. Definitely. Um, but I do, you know, I think we're going to have to see first how things go in Oregon in the coming years, because um, I don't foresee psychedelics being as available as cannabis. And I can actually tell you, I hope they don't, because if you just Google for the sake of, you know, seeing how often this happens, just Google marijuana edibles elementary school. And in doing so, you'll find many articles about accidental use, you know, uh, uh, students bring candy from home and, you know, um, Five to 10 kids have to go to the hospital with slight um, medical issues, uh, but nothing that they couldn't recover from. And it would be, uh, it would be frightful um, to see that same article with, you know, mushroom edibles elementary school, uh, because, you know, and this is, this is a big talking point in the psychedelics course, Psychedelics are very different from other psychoactive compounds. Um, and the things that make them different is their intensity, their, um, they create this sinuous boundary, you know, where, where there's uh, almost a, a curvature to everything you see and, uh, and a dissolving between the boundary between you and other people. Um, and they also have this, this property called hyper-associativity where things mean more at that moment than maybe they would before. And we watched a video of a, a young woman 
you know, playing with an orange and saying, oh, this means something, this means something, right? I don't think we want to risk young people having these kinds of experiences in elementary school. Um, you know, it, that's a huge, huge no in my eyes. So to create a recreational psychedelic industry similar to the one like marijuana, I think we would have to look to see what are some of these, um, what are some of these risks from the, the cannabis industry that we're seeing? And, and the elementary school edible, you know, incidents are terrible. They should not happen, but they do. Um, fatalities on the road, we'd have to look very carefully. I, I, I think, you know, if you left the opportunity for someone to purchase LSD or, or MDMA at a, a head shop or a, a dispensary and they drive with it. Um, I mean, these are real big risky things. So the way I foresee things is there's going to have to be some sort of more regulated system than cannabis, whether it mean there are retreat centers, um, you know, there's a place in Orlando called uh, the Soul Quest Church of Ayahuasca, where um, they have um, they have a religious group there that uh, claims you know ayahuasca is part of their religion, and people pay close to a thousand dollars to attend a retreat, where it's a two day retreat, and they do you know ayahuasca ceremonies, uh, and you know. I'm sure you're aware, but for any of your listeners, ayahuasca contains the um, psychoactive uh, NN dimethyltryptamine, also known as DMT, and it's mixed with uh, another plant that actually elongates the time frame by which the DMT stays active in your body. So these are, you know, long ceremonies, um, but they're done, you know, in a controlled environment with, you know, with guided um spiritual leaders is what they call themselves or, or, or uh, guides, uh, people who have partaken in the, the plant medicine previously and they know what it, you know, what it would do. So something along those lines um, would seem to me to be the best, um, the best option if we were to make this thing um, available on a, you know, on a national level. Um, it's very difficult to, to foresee, Toby. I, I think when I when I sit here and visualize it, um, you have to you have to think what whatever you vision, what could be a consequence. That's the number one thing that you have to think about because no matter what, there may be a benefit, but if the consequence is great, then the benefit gets wiped out. And I think we saw that in the 60s, right? You had the Harvard Psilocybin Project, people like Leary and Alpert, and they, they, they were doing uh, what they thought was, you know, a good thing for society until um, there were some people who, who, you know, did not have the spiritual, uh, you know, success that maybe they hoped everybody would. And, um, yeah, it's hard to visualize what it will look like. Absolutely, yeah. And, you know, another thing that, that I was sort of thinking of is, well, I guess, two things. I mean, in terms of 
you know, trying to figure out, you know, who, like if, who should, who should actually be able to take these things, take these substances safely. I mean, there's all of the, you know, I've, I've seen companies popping up doing like, you know, genetic testing for pharmaceuticals. You know, I think it's, what is it? Pharmacogenetic testing, you know, where they're actually evaluating, uh, you know, how, how the genes affect someone's response to taking certain medications. It's like, I think, I wonder about if that sort of thing would be possible for psychedelics where you could identify maybe certain, certain psychedelic drugs that might be more risky for certain individuals just based on their genetic predisposition. Do you think that is something that would be possible going forward in the future? Yeah, that's a, an excellent point. Um, you know, recently I did speak with somebody who um, suggested something along those lines. In fact, um, kind of going back to my, my personal background, uh, when I was in graduate school, besides looking to work with um, Dr. Nichols, I was also, I was very wide range. And, and one of the fields that was really quite interesting was, um, was stem cells at the time. This was back in, in 09. And um, what was interesting was that um, while there had been identified four particular genes that could be modulated to differentiate a stem cell. So just, just a little uh, biology uh, 101, stem cells are basically these like early cells that haven't turned into anything particular. They haven't turned into a hair cell or a nerve cell or a heart cell. And what was found in the early 2000s was that you can modulate the, the, the cell. You could actually tell it what to grow into um, by modulating these genes, right? And you know, the, the problem with that was there were some moratoriums on genetic engineering, especially of things like, you know, embryonic stem cells that were coming from human embryos. So scientists were trying to do the, the chemical, um, the chemical modification. So instead of modulating the gene by, you know, messing with the genetics, they were seeing what if you gave a stem cell a molecule and it, you know, you just added a little bit of, you know, a few specks of a, a chemical that you had designed that could make it turn into, you know, a heart cell or a nerve cell. And so the, the idea there is instead of doing something genetically, you do something chemically. Well, in our brains, when we are, you know, having a psychedelic experience, it's because, you know, historically we have ingested psilocybin, LSD, MDMA, something along those lines. It's a chemical modification of your brain, right? You're, you're, you're getting the receptor to bind to the, to the compound and doing the signal pathway. What if instead of doing it chemically, you could genetically do it? So instead of actually um, taking uh, a drug, there was a way to manipulate your genes to give you... Um, a, a psychedelic experience. So uh, it's not necessarily genetic testing to see who might have that psychiatric disorder, but it's another novel way to kind of create the psychedelic experience. And, you know, this, this too is really interesting from an academic perspective is that what's happening in the psychedelic space is outside of the researchers, you have a ton of people who are trying 
to get into the game to either make money or um, to, you know, to invest in people who um, have a good idea. And so there's just, there's a lot that you have to sift through to know, you know, what is being done, you know, um, with, with good intention, with, with proper education, with proper research. And there's the whole, <laughs> the whole separate question of these are generally derived from plants <clears throat> who have been used by cultures, you know, for thousands of years. And what does it say about our, uh, you know, our current state of things that we are trying to capitalize on perhaps things that were a ritual to a people before us who are, you know, um, either dying out, uh, not gaining any kind of benefit from the psychedelic, you know, renaissance. Anytime, anytime, Toby, you go to one of these psychedelic conferences, it is almost inevitable that someone's going to stand up and say, we must, must, must remember that we are, you know, working with things that derive from plant medicines from cultures before us and, you know, include them on your advisory boards, include them in your philanthropic donations, um, it's it's fascinating what happens at these conferences because there are so many different things that are 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 popping up, and you know maybe when you read on the news, you know oh there's a new report about you know, veterans benefiting from PTSD, you know, benefiting from MDMA um, to for their PTSD symptoms you just see, oh, this is great, that we're helping people. But um, in that process, there's somebody there who's thinking about how they can make a buck. There's somebody there who is um, not gaining any, uh, you know, respect or, or benefit, though they may have paved the way for this kind of work. So, um, I know I, I'm not really good at answering specific questions. <laughs> I guess I, 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 I always go back to why I do what I do, which is there's so much happening. And for the next generation of people in this renaissance, it's so important that they just see the full picture that, you know, if you're going to design a model to integrate and have uh, psychedelics as part of our culture, whether it's a treatment center or um, a, a assisted therapy in a, in a, uh, you know, a, a, a psychotherapist's office, you've got to think about everything involved. Um, is it accessible to everybody? Is it, um, is it being done properly? Is it being done safely? Are we protecting people who could be damaged from it? So much. Yeah, no, I mean, that's a great point. I mean, I think all of these are very valid concerns and and another concern i mean i that i guess we haven't really discussed too much is just like you know in terms of the people who are actually doing say like these you know people running these say ayahuasca retreats or people who are involved in in doing psychedelic assisted therapy it seems as though you know there's there's great disparity amongst i mean there could be it could be like a you know kind of a, a, sh a shaman sort of person leading one of these retreats 
or it could be with like, say, psychedelic assisted therapy. Um, from my understanding, it's usually like a, um, a psychotherapist who's had, I guess, some amount of training in, in using psychedelics. And I've seen different uh, certification, a couple different certification programs. Uh, I have a buddy who's, who's currently a physician who's currently taking one, I believe, through like the California uh, Institute of Integral Studies. They have some psychedelic, uh, I guess, psychedelic training program. And I guess I, I just wanted to hear from you, you know, do you think there should be a certain like certification or certain credentials or just like any sort of regulation as far as who should, who should be able to lead one of these psychedelic assisted sessions or retreats? Yeah, that's a very excellent point. Um, when the students uh, come to me and they tell me I'm interested in psychedelic, you know, uh, in, in the industry, I usually tell them there's, you know, the two main things going on right now are psychedelic assisted therapy and psychedelic research. And then there's, you know, just a whole slew of other things, whether you're getting involved in fundraising or um, uh, marketing or, or, or maybe a new um, magazine or, or, or news article, uh, newsletter that you're writing for. Uh, when it comes to the therapy, therapists need to be trained as therapists first and foremost, because therapy is not just about you know, taking a compound and then seeing what happens. Therapy is knowing how to work with somebody. And the psychedelic assisted is just as it indicates, it's an assistance. So we still need to really be thinking about training therapists to be good therapists. But then how do we integrate or get the, the right type of training for those who want to use psychedelics? Um, you're right that there's currently a lot of different ways to do it. Um, MAPS has a certification. Um, the California Institute for Integral Studies, they have uh, some training. Uh, there are some um, independent uh, uh, groups. Fluence is one of them. Um, you know, in a lot of ways, I go back to the sports um, model. There's a lot of different trainings to be a, a coach uh, or to be a personal trainer. You know, the American Society for uh, Sports Medicine, um, the, for triathlon, you would go through the U.S. Association of Triathlon, USAT for track and field. You go through the USTF, USATF. Um, it's, it's, again... Um, it's, we don't have the perfect system right now because, um, there, you know, you can't go to a university and just take the psychedelic assisted therapy course because they don't exist. So how do we start creating that? Um, you know, the, I guess my hopes would be that, um, the main, you know, the main groups doing it now would not just think about training future therapists, but also creating a sustainable training model. Uh, it could very well be something that, say, MAPS would eventually talk to universities about incorporating a course in their therapy programs that, you know, would allow students to um, while they're doing their therapy to include that as part of their training. And, and again, that probably won't happen for another 15, 20 years, if even, 
but um, you bring up a valid point, you know, how do we, and, and, and right now when someone tells you, yes, I'm a, I'm a trained shaman or I'm a trained guide, you know, uh, what does that even mean? You know, where did you do your training? Um, exactly. Yeah. I, I think even in our hour long discussion, you know, what you'll hear out of me is, is a healthy dose of skepticism. And I don't think that makes me a psychedelic educator who doesn't see potential, but I think it, you know, the way I turn it around, my assignments are to my students to, um, to write policy. Um, how, how should you foresee the future for psychedelics? And, and I want them to think about it. And we have them think about how to integrate federal to state to city levels. You know, the, the decriminalizations that we're seeing are mostly on the city level. Uh, Santa Cruz, Denver, Oakland, uh, you know, um, there's a few cities in the North and in, in Massachusetts that passed some decriminalization, but these are cities. They're not states. Um, the only state that decriminalized, uh, well, DC decriminalized uh, mushrooms, but uh, the only state like, you know, large state was really Oregon to, um, to decriminalize and also to set up the, the psychedelic assisted therapy, you know, with measure 109. Um, but it's not, it's not everywhere. So uh, we have to think about how to do that. We have to think about the research being done and is it being done, you know, is it being done to the best of its ability? Um, one of the things the students recognize immediately when we look at the research is that the, the end value, right? end value meaning the number of participants, they're generally really low. And, um, you know, it's for reasons. Uh, it's difficult to financially, you know, back these studies. Keep in mind that a study with a psychedelic like LSD or psilocybin, where you have dosing days that are going to be close to seven to eight hours, you know, seven to 10 hours, however long they are, you've got to have, you know, therapists on hand who require, you know, salaries. Um, you have to have a center that can hold people for that long. Um, you have to have the researchers that are going to do the work. And again, a lot of money, that is required to do this work and federal funding has not necessarily flowed to this. I think we just had the first, um, you know, grant, uh, to Matt Johnson's group, um, and, and Hopkins to do, you know, uh, federally funded studies on psilocybin, um, in particular with, with, I think, addiction to, um, to tobacco, to, to smoking. Um, so, you know, I, I definitely try as an educator to have the young people not just buy into the hype, but evaluate the whole scenario. And I think, that I really hope that psychedelic education goes in that direction where other, other universities have, you know, professors pop up and say, we, we, need, to, we need to really look at this thing for, uh, to protect the the potential of it and also to really help it grow in the right direction 
otherwise you know you know who's going to try and take over is going to be the people who want to make a buck off it and they will do whatever it takes to make a buck off it um you see them too, Toby. When you go to a psychedelic conference, you can see who's dressed to make a, a buck and then who's there because they are really passionate about their research or about, you know, helping people. Um, and it, it, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a healthy mix of those. I guess an unhealthy mix because we don't really want those there that are just there to make a buck. But it's by healthy mix, I'm, I'm saying there's a good good proportion of people at these conferences that are there hoping to capitalize off of this, this new industry. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it seems as though, you know, uh, there is a lot of money to be made, but hopefully, hopefully that money is going to be made in a responsible way. That's making sure that, you know, more benefit is being done than, than harm and taking into account all of these different factors, you know, that we've, we've talked about on the show, all these nuances of psychedelic use and regulation. So Joey, we're coming up onto the end of the show, but for people who want to, you know, connect with you or find out more about your work or, or psychedelic research in general, are there any sort of resources that you would direct them to? You know, Toby, I'm terrible when it comes to social media and all that. <laughs> I, um, I would tell people if they wanted to reach out to me to email me um, at my, my, you know, FIU email. It's my first initial J and my last name, Lichter, L-I-C-H-T-E-R at FIU.edu. Um, as far as resources go, um, there are quite a bit of um, quite a bit of conferences that have been moving online. Um, I'm currently working as a volunteer uh, for the International Conference of Psychedelic Research, which will be held in the Netherlands in um, September of 2022, September this year. Um, I think it will also have a live stream for those that want to watch it. Uh, my students did create the FIU Psychedelics Club out of the course, and um, they are always trying to expand and, and do things in the community to push education. They're on Instagram at FIU Psychedelics Club. Um, and yeah, I'm, yeah, I, uh, <laughs> you can find me at FIU's campus where I'm usually teaching a class or helping somebody get into medical school or, um, you know, just talking to students, spending my time doing what I do best. Awesome. Awesome. Well, definitely recommend uh, you guys go check check that out or check those things out and for those who enjoyed the show go ahead and like and subscribe to our youtube channel it's roscoe's wetsuit neuro we're just about to a thousand subscribers so i'd love for you to help uh, get us there if you enjoyed the show today and you can also if you prefer just listening to the audio version of the show uh, check out the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or any of the other major audio streaming platforms. So Joey, again, I wanted to really thank you for coming on the show and just sharing all of your, your knowledge and expertise on psychedelics and, and their use and regulation. Toby, thank you so much for having me. And uh, I look forward to talking uh, more to you outside of your uh, webcast at some time.